This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Hello, welcome to the program. My name is Spumele Lezondi. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 7260 kHz in the 31 meter band. If you are in Southern Africa, you can also stream us on channelafrica.co.za. Joala Natulo has your news, Usani Matebula has your economic news, and Musibudi Makura has your sports news. Your top stories. The Prince of Wales in Nigeria is part of a nine-day tour of Africa to advance British interests. Amnesty International criticizes the arrest of the 10 men based on suspicion of being gay in Tanzania. In economic news, Africa Investment Forum leaders say there's a growing urgency to develop and invest on the continent. And in sports, South Africa's national women's football team to be rewarded handsomely should they win the 2018 Africa Women's Cup of Nations tournament. Let's get to news first from Jolane. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Prosecutors in Rwanda have, re- have requested that political activist Diane Ruigara be handed 22 years in prison for inciting insurrection and forgery as her trial opened in the capital Kigali. Ruigara has denied the charges, dismissing them as politically motivated after her, block attempt, her blocked attempt to challenge President Paul Kagame in last year's elections. A treason charge which had previously been laid against Ruigara was not made mentioned in court she appeared in court alongside her mother who prosecutors also won sentence for 22 years for inciting uh, for promoting sectarianism the two women had spent more than a year behind bars before being released on bail last month ahead of their trial a Nigerian court has refused to release a Shiite Muslim cleric who has been in custody since 2015 following deadly clashes between troops and his supporters. Ibrahim Zagzaki, who leads the Islamic, the Islamic Movement of Nigeria, IMN, and his wife Zanat are standing trial on charges of culpable homicide and, unlaw- and unlawful assembly. Zagzaki's legal team had called for his release on health grounds, saying he needed urgent medical care abroad, but the court denied the the request. The court ruled that the accused may get medical attention from intelligence services. It also pledged that a speedy trial would take place. The IEC in South Africa has announced that the 2019 general elections will take place in May. It was briefing the media in the capital Pretoria on its readiness to host the elections. This will be the sixth general election to be held in the country since the ushering in of democracy in 1994. President Sarora Maposa will proclaim the date in February. IEC Chairperson Glenn Mashinini. The president then announced his intention to hold the elections before the end of May which now has narrowed that the election will take place in May. And as we normally do it on a public uh, holidays on a Wednesday, it would be one of those Wednesdays within the month of May after the, uh, the 7th of May. U.S. President Donald Trump faces new challenges in his power after the Democrats won control of the House of Representatives in the U.S. midterm elections. The Democrats will now be able to block Trump's legislative agenda and investigate allegations of corruption and conflicts of interest within the administration. The Republicans extended their control of the Senate on seating four Democrat, uh, Democrat incumbents and can now ensure that Trump is able to confirm his executive and judicial appointments. The BBC's Chris Butler has the details. If you take a look at the way Congress has been working, it's been controlled by Republicans. It has made Donald Trump's life relatively easy. Although he has fought with some of his own party, there is no doubt that he's been able to push forward his agenda to really try and get the legislation that he feels is important through Congress and through both chambers of it. But now, all of a sudden, things have changed. 
And finally, South Korea has apologized for the rape of women by troops who were sent to crush an anti-government protest in the city of Gwangju in 1980. Last week, a government investigation revealed that it found 17 cases of sexual assault by soldiers. The BBC's Michael Bristow reports. In a televised address, the defence minister bowed as he described how soldiers had inflicted unspeakable pain on innocent women. Those attacked included teenagers and a pregnant woman. Some had not been taking part in the demonstrations. More than 200 people were killed in Guangzhou when troops ended a protest against the military government that then ran South Korea. Its apology is part of a continuing re-evaluation of what happened in the city 38 years ago. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. Thanks, Cholane. It is now 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Now, the Prince of Wales is in Nigeria for a three-day visit as part of a nine-day tour of Africa to advance British interests. Prince Charles is accompanied by his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall. Here's Collins at Tohangbe. The British prince was received at the foregrounds of the presidential villa Abuja in company of his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, at the commencement of a three-day visit during which he is expected to discuss a number of issues bordering on common interest. The Prince of Wales, who doubles as the head of the Commonwealth, came into Nigeria from Ghana, where he held similar talks bordering on British interest in Africa. A foreign affairs analyst and former director general of the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs, Bola Akintenewa, says the visits attest to the bill that Britain is making effort to protect its interest in African nations with stronger economy to precede its planned exit from the European Union. It simply suggests that the British are committed to sustaining the relationship with Nigeria for obvious reasons. The mere fact that uh, the Prime Minister was here two months ago and uh, the Prince uh, has chosen to come at this particular time, she risk questions than just um, ordinary interest. I want to believe that the prince is here to ensure that Nigeria remains in the orbit of uh, British influence and particularly to ensure that British interests in Nigeria are not uh, tampered with, they are well protected, more so that uh, the controversy still surrounding uh, post-Brexit strategies. It is important for the British to begin to woo stronger economies in Africa so that they wouldn't be caught unawares by the time um, they will be exiting, if they will be exiting. The British High Commissioner to Nigeria, Paul Arkwright, says Britain has been collaborating with Nigeria in several areas of bilateral relations and that this visit will complement what the British Prime Minister Theresa May had done during her visit to Nigeria two months earlier. The UK has been providing military support to Nigeria for the last four years. We've trained over 30,000 Nigerian troops who are going to fight uh, the Boko Haram terrorists in the northeast. Uh, We're providing support in other ways through intelligence and so on. Uh, So we've already provided a lot of support. But when my Prime Minister was here only two months ago, uh, we signed a security and defence partnership which will increase that support, look at other ways in which we can provide support because clearly uh, Nigeria needs some support in that area. Um, when it comes to the farmer herders, um, we're not directly engaged. We're looking at ways in which we can help with uh, reconciliation, with mediation. I know that the Prince of Wales is very interested in this aspect of it as well. And so he will be meeting some people who are involved in the mediation efforts, the peace efforts in, uh, in the Middle Belt and uh, encouraging them to, to go forward. Prince Charles had a rare opportunity of meeting with prominent Nigerian traditional leaders where issues of interest including the individual socio-economic projects of the various traditional rulers were tabled for discussions with the visitor. Speaking on the meeting with Prince Charles, the Emma of Kano, Lamido Sanusi, who spoke to journalists after the meeting, gave an insight into what chanced at the meeting. We talked about uh, population control. I know the government is talking about it. Uh, My experience uh, as a traditional ruler is that culturally, you're going to have a lot of difficulty if you just um, approach it in the manner we've always done it, to come and talk about contraception and family planning. That doesn't solve the problem. But the one single silver bullet to me for 
addressing the demographic challenge is the education of a girl child. And these are the kinds of issues that, I, that we had a conversation around. And uh, the whole idea is to how do we work with the British, how do we work with anybody who's interested in, in dealing with these issues and, and see how they can help us and how we can learn from them and how they can learn from our experience. Looking at what the situation could be after Brexit, Professor Akintenriwa says the most pressing issue that should attract the attention of Britain should be security and stable polity in Nigeria because of its interest to the stability of British interest in the country. I think the British should be more interested in the political stability of Nigeria. This is uh, very critical because at the end of the day, even the polity is not stable, then their interests also will not be stable. And the security, uh, I want to believe, should still be the main focus. And then the British should assist in fighting, you know, tooth and nail, um, the, the terrorists. Security, I think, should be given the priority. Prince Charles' visit to Nigeria came two months after Prime Minister May's African tour, during which he made moves to strengthen ties with his traditional friends, including South Africa. The state visit began in the Gambia and will be concluding with a trip to Nigeria before he returns to London early enough for his 78th birthday anniversary. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengwe for Channel African News. It is 17.11 Central African time. Now the South African Broadcasting Corporation may issue retrenchments, um, retrenchment letters to workers at the beginning of February next year. This will be done if the 60-day consultation process with unions and other stakeholders doesn't produce alternative cost-cutting measures. The SABC says the consultation process in line with Section 189 of the Labor Relations Act will start next Tuesday. It will be facilitated by the CCMA. The public broadcaster intends to lay off 981 permanent staff. It also plans to cut down drastically on its use of freelancers. Session 9 reports. SABC management says due to the current financial crisis facing the corporation, it may be forced to lay off staff to save costs. It says through these retrenchments, it will be able to save about 440 million rand per annum. SABC Group Executive Human Resources Jonathan Tekiso says should the retrenchments go ahead, staff will be notified at the beginning of February next year. The duration of the, of the consultation process is legislated as 60 days, so 60 days from the 13th of November. And at the end of the consultation sessions, it's only when we'll be in a position to, uh, to conclude on the process. And... From, from the beginning of February, we will then start you know, issuing notice letters. That is, if the organization proceeds with the retrenchment process. During the 60-day consultation process, the SABC, together with workers' unions, Muasa, Bemao and CWU, must attempt to find ways of avoiding or minimizing the number of people who may lose their jobs. But if this is not achieved, they need to take measures to mitigate the effects of retrenchment and agree on the method for selecting the employees to be dismissed as well as severance pay. Tekiso says the SABC is currently looking at ways of restructuring all departments as another cost-cutting tool. All that we are looking at right now is a reduction of the number of layers of management as well as looking at uh, the span of control uh, of uh, the respective divisions. So this affects all divisions within the SABC, but these are matters session that are going to form part of the, uh, the consultation, first consultation meeting, which is going to be held on the 13th. SABC workers' unions are opposed to the retrenchments. General Secretary of CWU, Aubrey Shabalala, says the first point of call is for the SABC to discuss their turnaround strategy with the unions. We know about the turnaround strategy, which they not, did not present to us. We think the first route is that uh, you engage on a turnaround strategy. You listen to the alternative voice. There's a number of ways to keep SABC sustainable financially. Because we don't want a situation where you, from time to time, asking for a bailout from government. One of those things is to deal with the issues of levy uh, coming from the OTTs in terms of uh, digital um, broadcasting. The second point is that at the ANC conference, 
there was uh, this uh, resolution that was made of increasing the subsidy of SABC to 40% amongst others. Shabalala says they will also be taking the SABC on when it comes to the non-renewal of freelance contracts. We've seen the numbers. Remember, when you go to the process of retrenchment, we have to identify people, we have to identify departments, we have to have a rationale why are these people targeted. SABC have just put a blanket to say between them, the so-called freelancers and the permanent workers, these are the numbers. But what, what we want to dismiss is that uh, there's this notion that freelancers have no rights as workers. Freelancers, in terms of this uh, Labor Relations Act, have equal rights mm. with so-called permanent workers. So on those bases, we are going to fight this uh, head-on. The organization's most financially turbulent times recently was when Claudi Matsuneng was COO. A public protector's report identified several irregular appointments, promotions and salary increases. This cost the SABC millions of rand. Bemao president Hannes Dubison says the unions helped to expose these irregularities. The whole um, situation as it played out is as a result of us complaining uh, about what, has, what, what went on at the time at the SABC. It is us who exposed all of the uh, irregular contracts, um, the, the, the TV license people that has been appointed, the, the vision view set, all of those, that information. It's a dossier that we compiled, uh, which we then submitted uh, to, to, to portfolio committee and also to, uh, to internal audits. Communications Minister Nomvula Mokonyane has criticized the SABC board over the possible retrenchments. The minister's spokesperson, Mli Mandela Ndimase, says Mokonyane has committed to helping the SABC develop a sustainable plan to avoid retrenchments. The minister has stated her commitment to assist the SABC, looking at the funding model, supported in its turnaround plan and strategies, but has also insisted that in order to make sure that we do develop a, a sustainable turnaround plan, we must bring on board the National Treasury, the Department of Communication, so that there is partnership with all the necessary stakeholders, and especially the shareholder, in ensuring that the turnaround plan that is presented is sustainable and it is a turnaround plan that will indeed deliver us into an SABC of the future. SABC Chief Executive Officer Madodam Kakwe says the SABC is beginning to see positive green shoots as shown by modest improvement in revenue growth of 6% quarter to quarter. Mkakwe also says cost containment year-to-date is 12% below budget representing savings of 463 million rand. I'm Sasha Naidu in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. 17-18 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, in Africa, 23% of deaths are linked to the environment. This is the highest for any region in the world on a per capita basis, aiming to identify emerging environmental threats and agree on a strategic action plan. Nearly 300 delegates are this week gathering in Gabon for the third interministerial conference on health and environment. The meeting is jointly organized by the government of Gabon, the World Health Organization and the United Nations Environment. For more on this meeting, here's WHO's Dr. Magaran Bakayoko. This uh, gathering is all about the strategic alliance between health and environment. Ten years back, ministers of health and ministers of environment gathered in Libreville and they adopted a landmark policy instrument, so-called Libreville Declaration. So the Libreville Declaration is today the umbrella framework under which health and environment sectors are working together to address 
public health and ecosystem integrity challenges associated with development process and even community footprint on the environment. So this conference is now about to take stock of what has been achieved over the 10 years and to agree on a new way to increase multi-sectoral dialogue and to address priority intervention on health in environment through also improving investments. Now, let's talk about the issue of premature deaths in Africa linked to the environment. Firstly, tell us what's the picture like in terms of premature deaths which are attributed to the environment. Today in Africa, we know the burden of diseases attributable to environment is substantial. The region is facing a high burden Roughly 23% of disease burden is associated to avoidable and manageable environmental risk factors. And this figure is even more higher if you consider children. It reaches 26% within children. So the main causes of this death are communicable diseases, the real diseases like cholera, foodborne diseases, malaria, and other vector-borne diseases, including dengue. But a big killer also in Africa is air pollution. And we have almost 1 million deaths yearly due to air pollution. You know, in Africa, we are still lacking clean water, drinking water, and we are also lacking clean household energy. So, and it's not acceptable that just cooking food exposes people at a risk because they rely on biomass and these polluted energy sources that really contributing to increase their vulnerability to communicable diseases, particularly chronic diseases. And if you look at these risk factors, there is no single sector alone can address this. There is no sector who can have alone the mandate or the resource to address. That's why we really want all the sectors to get together, the health sector, environment sector, municipalities, partners, NGOs, civil society, to really address and come with a clear, concrete, actionable plan that can fast-track the implementation of the Liberal Declaration in order to achieve sustainable development goals. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned the ambitious sustainable development goals because I was going there. I mean, given the picture you've just painted, I want to ask, does it look like the region will achieve the sustainable development goals? If you look at um, SDG number three, it does speak about addressing premature deaths. Does it look like the region will meet these goals? The region, if you look look at SDG number three, the SDG number three is uh, health and well-being. But this SDG is really at the heart of all the SDGs. So all the the SDGs uh, benefit from health, and health also benefit from all the SDGs. Africa will be able to make a substantive contribution to achieving SDGs if we put in place this intersectoral and partnership. As I said, if you take SDG 3, which is health and well-being, it's linked, for instance, to SDG 6, which is about water. Because if you don't provide sustainable water, you cannot achieve SDG 3, because without water, there is no life. If you don't provide clean energy, uh, which is, I think, uh, SDG 7, there is no issue you can address this. If you don't provide also good condition in urban health, urban setting, our cities, so there is no way you can address. You can see that health is associated with all the SDGs. That's why the SDGs should not be addressed in a silos. Sectors should integrate their efforts at national, regional, and global level to be able to address these SDGs. We know today, for instance, climate change is a global concern, and climate change is also exacerbating existing risks to human health and also create new emerging risks. So, and those are global issues, which means if you want to address climate change, you need to have adaptation plans, you need to have mitigation plans, but we need also to address loss and damages. So, and all these aspects need African countries sectors to work together, working together at country level and also working together at international level. That's Dr. Margaran Bakayolo, Acting Director of the Communicable Diseases Cluster at the World Health Organization Regional Office for Africa, talking to Jane Rabotata.
Rice Group Amnesty International says the arrest of the 10 men based on suspicion of being gay in Tanzanian island of Zanzibar is a human rights violation. The arrests come after a prominent politician last week called on the public to report to the names of suspected gay men to the police. Safe Magango, spokesperson at Amnesty International in Tanzania, explains. The law in Tanzania bans the act of uh, sex between men. That is to the extent that it goes. It bans sodomy. It's um, a colonial era law that bans the, the act of, 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 of sodomy. It doesn't go into any more detail than that. Safe, let us in on this case of the 10 men that were arrested on suspicion of being gay. Are they still arrested now? What is the latest? Yes, we spoke to their lawyer this morning and they're still in detention at the police station where they were taken when they were arrested. So they remain in jail, yes, they're behind bars. These people are suspected of being gay. They haven't told anyone that they are gay. There is no way of telling someone who's gay from someone who's not. So up until this point, we, we know that they are suspected of being gay. But even if they were, uh, the fact that um, they are being arrested when coming at a time when the government of uh, Tanzania has spoken and said in a statement just a few days ago that uh, it will uphold international human rights law and it will protect everyone's rights to, uh, as enshrined in the constitution of Tanzania, it is hugely disappointing that uh, they've gone on and uh, arrested people on, on Zanzibar Island. This uh, arrest bears the hallmarks of what the regional uh, commissioner of uh, the Islam, Mr. Paul Makonda, wanted to happen in the Islam, only that it's happening in Zanzibar. He asked people to report people, those that they suspect of being gay and the police to go and arrest them. This is exactly what happened on Zanzibar Island. Somebody saw a group of men meeting somewhere not harming anyone, just going about their business, and went called the police from them. Uh, told them that uh, these people are conducting a gay wedding, and uh, now it's day five since they were put in um, detention. And uh, what we are saying, really, these men need to be released. And um, then the, 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 the Tanzanian government, both on the mainland and on the island, must ensure these uh, roundups of gay people don't continue. Mm. Seth, surely this is not uh, the only case or this is not the first case that we, you know, perhaps Tanzania has seen on uh, people being arrested on allegations that they are gay or suspicions that they are gay. You know, if there are previous cases that you know of, how were those cases then dealt with? Well, there's been uh, many cases of people being arrested on suspicions of being gay and uh, there's been many cases of them being subjected to these inhumane anal exams to test whether they've had gay sex. And um, normally what has happened is there's been an outcry and people have uh, have appealed to the authorities and the cases have have been dropped. And we hope this this, this will turn out the same way. But we cannot continue to see these um, kinds of um, persecutions taking place every now and then. There has to be a sustained and solution to this so that people can live peacefully among other Tanzanians. It is 1728 Central African time. You just heard from Saif Magango, who's a spokesperson at Amnesty International in Tanzania, talking to Kumuto Mupulane. Your news headlines now. Here's Chola Netulo. Thank you. Spumelele making headlines. Prosecutors in Rwanda have requested that political analyst Diane Rwigara be handed 22 years in prison for inciting insurrection and forging as and forgery rather as her trial opened in the capital Kigali. A Nigerian court has refused to release a Shiite Muslim cleric who has been in custody since 2015 following deadly clashes between troops and his supporters. And finally, the IEC in South Africa has announced that the 2019 general elections 
elections will take place in May. For Channel Africa, I'm Jordani Tulo. Thank you very much, Olane. My name is Spumele Lezondi, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Remember to participate in the conversation by tweeting us on Channel Africa 1 or emailing us on info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also WhatsApp us on plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. That is plus two seven seven six three zero zero. 3327. South Africa's Guazulu Natal Tourism or Tourism Guazulu Natal organization is currently exhibiting at the World Travel Market in London. The exhibition comes hot on the heels of the inaugural direct British Airways flight on October 30 from Heathrow to Durban's King Shaka International Airport. Several European tour operators and travel agents recently visited KwaZulu-Natal ahead of the Durban Direct flight to see what the province has to offer. For more on this, we're now joined on the line from London by Keith Matthews, Tourism KwaZulu-Natal Manager in Charge of Europe. Hello and thank you very much for joining us, uh, Keith. Hi, good day, Sumilela. Good evening, Sumilela. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and hello to your listeners as well. All right. Um, now, Keith, KwaZulu-Natal, um, or Durban specifically, is South Africa's number one domestic tourism destination. Why are the numbers not the same when it comes to international tourism? Um, look, um, we, we, we do tend to face, you know, certain challenges. Um, obviously, you know, with it being long distance, um, um, when you look at other parts of Europe or you look at other parts of Africa, you know, the distances. Um, I mean, if you're looking at the northern parts of Africa, really people from Europe um, will take, what, an, a two-hour, three-hour flight and they reach the northern parts of Africa. Um, around Central Africa, um, you find that, the, you know, they'll take flights which are about maybe six or five, six hours. We really are at, um, you know, Africa's most southern tip. And um, also, uh, we acknowledge the fact that competition is fierce out there, so really people do look for, um, you know, um, they have a wide range of options. But also, you know, um, there's been other factors, you know, economic downturns, and, you know, the, the list is endless of factors that actually uh, contribute. You know, difference to numbers. Uh, but those that make it to South Africa would often um, choose Cape Town, the Kruger National Park, uh, or Johannesburg first. Why is that? I'm sorry, excuse me, repeat? I'm saying those that make it to South Africa, um, stats show that they choose Cape Town, the Kruger National Park, uh, perhaps Johannesburg, but not really Durban. Why is that? Um, you know what? Um, if you look at um, the, 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 the destinations, um, and really, you know, you get destinations that have traditionally been very, very well known. Traditionally, extremely, extremely well known. Um, and we know that, you know, um, you know, places like the Table Mountain, you know, the Robben Islands, which are known to people because um, about virtue of the fact that you've got your present Nelson Mandela's, the Kruger National Park, those places are, you know, generally very well known, way more known than Durban is. But I must say, you know, Durban has received a lot of accolades, um, you know, in the past couple of years, and really um, there has been sort of traction and an increase in the number of people who do tend to visit Durban. Uh, so if I'm sitting in Europe at the moment um, and want to come to South Africa, why should I choose Durban? Or KwaZulu-Natal for that matter? Uh, I, you know, I could say why not? But, uh, you know, there is so much. You know, by virtue of the fact that you're saying um, we might not be as known as the other destination. You know, it's because of the mystery that comes with that. And that's why you should choose KwaZulu-Natal. I mean, you have a myriad of things that you could possibly do in KwaZulu-Natal. Um, the attributes of the province, I mean, from your wildlife heritage, um, you know, to your historical experiences. I mean, really, we are the place where President Nelson Mandela, uh, the former President Nelson Mandela, was captured before he was taken to Robben Island. He comes out and he cast his very first democratic vote as well, you know, in Gosselin Natal when he comes out of prison. Um, we have, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a statue that is there, a monument that is there where he was captured, you know, which is made of 27 pillars. 
um, in Howick where he was captured. You know, obviously the 27 pillars representing, um, you know, the 37 years of imprisonment. So we have lots to offer in terms of history, culture. We have 600 kilometers of shoreline of which 200 is protected. Uh, that is our Isimangaliso Wetlands Park, which is a World Heritage Site. We also have about 200 kilometers of mountain range, which is spectacular. We sometimes get snow on those mountains. Also another heritage site, which is our Ukashamba Drakensberg Mountain. You know, we have things that are really unknown to a lot of people. I mean, on our northern shores, um, I, I, recently there's a fish that's been discovered around the St. Lucia area. I mean, thought had been that this fish had become extinct during the days of the dinosaurs. The fish is about 350 million years old. It's called the silicon. When it grows, it gets to be about six feet long. It gets to weigh about 90 kilograms. I, I mean, there's a lot. Within the St. Lucia area itself, I mean, you can get to do both land as well as water safaris. You know, the land safaris being around the Shushuwe area. Shushuwe is the oldest game park in Africa. This is where white rhinos were actually protected from becoming extinct. You want to come to our mountains? Do a 4x4 trek up Sunny Pass. Get to the top of Sunny Pass. You're already in another country, uh, but you can also there experience the highest pub on the continent. I mean, so why not come to Guazulu Natal? I mean, literally come because there's just so much to do. Mm. Um, as you've been in Europe trying to do this job, um, have you found that it's easy to tell people about KwaZulu Natal? It's easy to get their interest. You know what? It's, it's because there is so much. You have to be. You have to get to know your markets a bit well. What makes it a little bit easier is because our insights show us that the UK market is really looking, you know, for your battlefield experiences. They're looking for your wildlife experiences. And they're also looking for a little bit of sun. So that, in that sense, yes, it becomes a little bit easier, you know, to get to know what you should tone the itineraries to, what you should, um, how you should actually build your itineraries or your programs that you need to promote in this market. So, yeah, it, it, it does make it a bit easier for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and now tell us about these tour operators that you brought down to KwaZulu-Natal um, on that direct British Airways flight from London to Durban. I'm sorry, please repeat. Uh, tell us about the tour operators that you brought down to um, to Durban uh, on that direct flight from London to Durban. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm battling to hear you. What about those tour operators? I'm, I'm asking you to tell us a bit more about them. Oh, the tour operators that, that actually came down. Um, those tour operators, we brought them down um, to KwaZulu Natal because we actually wanted them to actually sample the destination. I mean, there's no better way to get to know a destination other than to sample, you know, the destination. Um, you know, some of them were already people who were selling KwaZulu Natal, and what we just wanted them to do is to experience the fact that you could now fly directly. Um, some of them were people who were selling other parts of South Africa, and we wanted them to now start including KwaZulu Natal in their itinerary. So, you know, there was a mix of both. But, um, yeah, if people whom we are confident will come back to the UK market and start creating more itineraries and more packages of, you know, our beautiful destination. Um, and uh, it sounds like you're marketing it differently to Europeans as you would to South Africans. South Africans often think of KwaZulu-Natal as a party sand beach destination. And here you're talking about um, history, you're talking about battlefields, you're talking about apartheid history as well. Yes. Um, our route to market internationally is business to business, you know, business to business. Um, in other words, we, we, we deal with trade internationally. We don't talk directly to consumers. Um, domestically, we do talk directly to consumers, and obviously the markets are very different. Um, you know, they obviously both respond to different stimuli. Um, if you're looking at international people, internationals, you know, would obviously want to book a trip, um, you know, via a, a reliable source, um, you know, and in this case, it would normally be tour operators and travel agencies. Domestic people tend to book directly. So, um, yes, um, you know, when, when you're looking at domestic people, because it's easier, you know, to come back to, to, to a destination because of obviously proximity, you know, they would tend, you know, to be interested in certain things, uh, which if they don't cover the first time around, you know, it's easy to come again, you know, maybe in the next three to six months. Whereas with internationals, they're trying to pile up as much as they possibly can in that one trip because obviously um, the trips cost a bit more. Um, but yes, um, they do respond to different things, um, internationals, but even with internationals themselves, they respond to different things. What the UK market tends to respond favorably to 
it's something which might be different with the German market uh, response to. You know, the UK, like I've said, you know, they're very into their battlefield, very into um, uh, uh, um, safari. In the German market, you know, they love their Isimangaliso wetlands park, um, you know, the St. Lucia area. Um, they do also like some wildlife. So, yeah, the different markets will definitely uh, respond differently um, to the offering. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much. All right, so that is Keith Matthews there, who is Tourism Gozulu Natal Manager in charge of Europe, joining us on the line from London as they're exhibiting at the World Travel Market over there. Now, permanent secretaries from ministries responsible for aviation from Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe and Zambia have agreed to form a joint air traffic communication system to ensure safety on the Zambezi corridor. The agreement, which is a result of two days of talks, is aimed at enhancing safe operations of uh, traffic to or out of Kasane, Gatima, Mulilo, Vic Falls and Livingston Airports. Here's Hilda Kekelo. In his opening remarks, Zambia's Transport and Communications Permanent Secretary, Michel Kulungu, said the International Air Transport Association projected intra-Africa annual average growth rate of 8% for the next 10 years and beyond is likely to be the same at the four airports. He however expressed concern that because of traffic growth, maintenance and traffic safety coordination is proving a challenge. For us to sustain tourism here, we need safer airspace. We want to have the operators speaking from one point. The operators in Zambia, Zimbabwe, Kasani speaking to each other. Currently there are barriers. You find that maybe operators in Kasane are sending a plane, operators in Vic Falls are sending a plane. They don't speak to each other because they operate independent airports. But now look at the proximity of their airports. It's too close. So you may find you are sending a plane because here the wind direction is east to west or north to south. You are sending a plane to say take off from the north or from the east going westwards. In Kasane it says no, take off from the west going eastwards. The pilots now have to, to use their eyes to see, I'm seeing an object coming in my direction, then try to, to avoid it. Zimbabwean authorities are concerned about the overload on airport controllers at Vic Falls and Harimwangankumbula in Livingstone who have to share radar facilities for communicating. Transport and Infrastructure Acting Permanent Secretary Theodius Chinyanga says the long-term benefit for the establishment of a unified communication system is economic development for the region. In Zimbabwe we have a gap which is actually being filled by Zambia. We don't have a radar for the Victoria Falls Airport, whereas Zambia is a radar. The two air traffic controllers are not effectively communicating and the, the coming together is to enhance that communication which is intended to torpedo any probability of having an incident in the airspace. Namibia Wakes and Transport Permanent Secretary William Kuiman commended his Zambian counterpart for calling up the meeting saying it is important that the region works as a team for improved traffic coordination. He said the expected joint command center will greatly assist operations at Katimamulilo that currently depends on the radar system at Vindok, more than a thousand kilometers away. We have also agreed that uh, in the long term, you know, probably three years from now, we need one operating center, you know, where we would uh, have a radar system that can uh, control, you know, the aircraft that are descending and ascending from these airports. We are also looking at our legislations, the national legislations that do not allow us to cooperate to see how that can be amended. Other than what has been highlighted, are there any specific obstacles Namibia has noted? Namibia has got uh, a radar system that uh, operates from um, Vanduk and then from Vanduk to Kadima Molilo is very, very far. These this equipment is a technical equipment you know, that may not pick up certain planes at a certain altitude and then things like that. So for us to talk to each other and then to ensure that we have this one operational center, I think it will help. Like the other sister governments, Botswana is concerned about safety 
due to an availability of necessary tools for proper communications between the four airports. Air Navigation Services Chief Inspector Samuel Mbakanyi believes the sooner the communication plans are effected, the better. Because safety is very is really compromised in this area, as you are speaking now, because of the lack of certain things that, that, uh, that are not in place in this area. The major thing that needs to be done is for the area of, for the four states to have uh, letters of agreements and agree on certain things that uh, operational issues, which is operational issues and how they can best op do the operations here. These are this one, what we call low-hanging fruits that are easily doable without maybe having any immediate cost. At the close of the meeting, the host, Engineer Longu, commended his three counterparts for participating, saying the benefits to be derived from a safe and efficient airspace system include growth in the tourism sector, agriculture, commerce and trade, all of which contribute to job creation and poverty reduction in the four countries. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I'm Hilda Kekerwa. And Usana is in studio with your economic news. Good evening, thanks. As Pumelele, a group of uh, syndicated loan members uh, who lent uh, 622 million US dollars to a Mozambican state firm, Pro Indicus, in 2013, are looking for a similar restructuring deal that has been agreed with Eurobond bondholders. Mozambique, which has uh, missed uh, several repayments, reached an agreement to restructure a $726.5 million eurobond, including extending maturities and sharing future gas revenues. The eurobond replaced an earlier bond issued by a Mozambican state firm, Ematum. Burundi plans to establish a securities exchange before the end of this year for companies to raise funds after a slowdown in commercial bank lending. Economic growth output in the East African nation has slowed down since a political crisis in 2015 sparked by President Pierre Nkurunzinza's decision to seek a third term. The aid-dependent Central African nation has lost their direct financial support from key donors such as the European Union over accusations of human rights violations and a crackdown on opponents which Burundi rejects. The central bank had uh, initiated talks with U.S.-based funds interested in investing in developing countries. For many citizens, it is not clear why prices for certain locally produced food items are increasing as they do not require foreign currency. As part of the remedy, government has engaged South African-based packaging manufacturers to assist. We're going that to that story. Grain Millers Association of Zimbabwe has bemoaned the recent food price increases owing to increased packaging costs and manufacturers of food packages increased prices recently, triggering an increase in the food prices, including Mealy Mill, a product wholly produced locally. The recent price increases has forced government to suspend the food import on banning up opening up for citizens to import basic goods from South Africa and Botswana. Simon Muchengo reports. For many citizens, it is not clear why prices for certain locally produced food items are increasing as they do not require foreign currency. As part of the remedy, government has engaged South African-based packaging manufacturers to assist. South African Power Utility ESCOM says its proposed job cuts will not affect ordinary workers. The Power Utility has approved a plan to cut executive jobs as it struggles to bring down costs. ESCOM says the move is the first step towards the company's proposed restructuring. ESCOM's operating costs have continued to increase dramatically, while the revenue has remained largely unchanged. Last month, Finance Minister Tito Mboweni indicated that ESCOM's workforce was bloated and unsustainable. He said that at least 30,000 jobs needed to be shared to stabilize the financial books. Economist Mike Schusler says job counts at ESCOM are inevitable. We all know in South Africa that ESCOM does have 
uh, quite too many workers and probably managers too, and that they will have to uh, reduce the amount of people um, as it's not optimal at the moment. I think it's very likely that we are going to see uh, people lose their jobs. I'm not quite sure how many people are uh, involved, but it does look like many managers in Eskom will probably lose their uh, job. And South African Telecom's firm Vodacom has entered into a roaming and facilities leasing agreement with Telcom, South Africa's biggest fixed-line operator. Vodacom says the multi-million US dollar agreement would allow Telcom customers customers to roam on Vodacom's 2G, 3G and 4G networks with full effect from June 2019. It did not specify the value of the deal. Telcom says the agreement will allow it to use Vodacom's towers, antennas and shelters to build out its own network. Financial indicators now the dollar trading at 10.46, Botswana Pula 11.63, Zambian Kwacha also at 7.6 pence to the British pound and 87 cents to the euro. Commodities gold $1,227, platinum $871 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil $72.05 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thanks very much, Wissan. It's now time for Sports News. Here's Musibudi. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Desiree Ellis, head coach of the South African national women's football team, today announced a final 20-woman squad that will represent the nation at the 2018 Africa Women's Cup of Nations tournament in Ghana. Banyana Banyana traveled to Ghana on Friday. The national team is set to play the Ghana's Black Queens in a friendly match on Sunday, the 11th of November, before the start of the tournament. Now, here is head coach Desiree Ellis on the makeup of her team. Uh, we believe we are, that we have a squad, um, that we have selected uh, a mixture of youth and experience, and that will do the job. Um, we will have a 21-player squad with four standby players um, that will travel with us to Ghana, and if nothing unforeseen happens, touch wood, you know, because uh, the reason why we're taking the four standby players is to make sure that if anything happens, that they are on the same level. Because keep leaving them at home, we're not sure what type of training they're going to get. And uh, they will return on the 13th when we officially arrive or get handed over to the tournament. Now, Banyana Banyana is in Group B alongside defending champions Nigeria, Kenya, as well as Zambia. This is South Africa's ninth appearance at this continental showpiece. They open their campaign against the Super Falcons of Nigeria on the 18th of November before facing the Harambe Starlets of Kenya on the 21st of November and uh, Shipolopolo of Zambia on the 24th of November. Now, Banyana Banyana captain Janine van Veek says it is vital that the team secure a top three finish and qualify for next year's FIFA Women's World Cup set for France. Some of us, um, it might be our last opportunity to qualify for a World Cup that we've never done before. Um, and I strongly believe that this is a team that is going to take us to France. Uh, why I say that is because we have players that are highly experienced in the team. We have a number of players that have been in the squad for, for so long, players that have over 100 caps in our team. Uh, players that have played overseas and competed at the highest of levels in um, women's football. On to local football news, two absolute premiership matches are scheduled to take place tonight. Kaiser Chiefs host Black Leopards at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg, while Mamelodi Sundowns welcome Free State Stars at Loftus Thatchfield Stadium in the country's capital, Pretoria. Now both matches kick off at 7.30pm Central African time. On to cricket news, Proteas women's team all-rounder Sunay Luce believes that they can win the ICC Women's World T20 Tournament, which begins on Friday in the West Indies. Luce says they have the full package to be title contenders, but it will be important that they take the tournament game by game. Now, the Proteus play their first game against Sri Lanka 
on Monday. Yeah, no, I think without a doubt we can still win this thing. I mean, and we've seen with our bowling, we can restrict any team to a, a reasonable total. And I mean, if if the batters come to the party, it should be easy to chase down. Not that, not that I'm saying it's going to be easy, but it should be a, a good game. And I mean, with our batting, um, you know, we got Lazali in the name, Chloe and and Kapi and all the big hitters coming in. Yes, and myself and Laura and Mignon. You've got the experience. I mean, and um, so yeah, I think if we if we come to the party. Um, it should be, we should be okay. And finally, Springbok women's captain Nolisindi Soboy says the team is thrilled by the prospect of playing their first test match on tour, but they are bracing themselves for a tough challenge against Wales at Cardiff Arms Park on Saturday. Now, the clash against Wales kicks off at 1.30pm Central African time and marks the very first of three tests on their tour. This will be followed by matches against Spain in Villa Josa on Saturday, the 17th of November, and Italy in Prato on Sunday, the 20th. 25th of November. Now, Stanley Rubenheimer, coach of the Springbok women's team, will name the side to face Wales on Friday morning. While well, those are sports news at the SAWA, stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.56 Central African time and let's recap our top stories. The Prince of Wales is in Nigeria as part of a nine-day tour of Africa to advance British interests. Amnesty International criticizes the arrest of the 10 men based on suspicion of being gay in Tanzania. With that, we wrap up Africa Digest for this hour for myself. Spumela is only producer Luanda Mahomet, technical producer Dumelo Mokwena and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. It is info at channelafrica.co.za an email plus 27763033327 on WhatsApp. Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We leave you with Lava Lava by Tua Savage and Duncan Mighty.
Jeje My lover, my lover, I love you Jeje See how I love you, no be tete Cause when I deal with you, my baby, no regret, yeah Bring your body, put it all on me Boy, it's all I wanna see Spells. We don't need no referee, yo All we need is privacy I love, I love her. You know, say I don't get wala Any how you like, I go do my dear As long as it no cost my lava you go treat me well, oh. Give me good love and no be kiss and tell you. No be say after I wine I'm well, oh. Make you no go leave your girl for inside well. Oh yo, oh yo. Ndirani Moni, inunonse amene mkumvera kuwaires ya channel A 